You're listening to the Oil and Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 126. What's up, Mark? Uh, I'm doing fine, Jake. You're not doing so hot, are you? I'm feeling like death, but you know what? I'm here, so let's do this. <laughs> yeah, the show must go on. All right, so um, we'll take a second real quick, Jake, and thank. We've had a bunch of new listeners sign up, so um, you know we appreciate all of our long-term listeners. Um, you know, Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for listening to the show. Without you, this show would not be possible. And also wanted to reach out and say thank you to all our new listeners. Glad you found us. Uh, if you could do us a favor and share it with your friends and maybe leave us a review on iTunes, we'd appreciate that. Um, we need to talk real quick about on-the-road sponsors, Total Land, the world's most advanced field land management system. If you're in that upstream landman's world, go check them out. They, they really make your life easier. And then Lee Heck Harrison. Uh, Lee Heck Harrison's helping three-quarters of the large oil and gas companies with talent management and leadership and workforce transformation. If you need some help there, Jake will put links in the show notes. You can go check them out. Um, speaking of Jake and I, if you want us to come talk, we have um, – um, several universities that's reached out to us. We are 2018 is starting to fill up, but if you want us to come talk to your trade association, your school, um, your sales meeting, your marketing meeting, whatever, reach out to Jake and I, and we will be happy to share the details. Now we need to jump a news story. So what's the first news story, Jake? All right. So I'm gonna try to get through out through these without coughing too much. Um, so if you're just joining us for the first time, uh, or if, if you're relatively new to the show, you know, we, we, Mark and I both love technology. Um, you know, I'm heavily involved in uh, tech in the oil and gas space, um, and Mark is absolutely fascinated by it as well. And we both believe that one day oil and gas will most likely look like Silicon Valley. We think it's going to be sexy. We think we're going to have a lot of people, uh, you know, graduating from school and wanting to come into this industry because it is a place that they want to work. Um, so this first article is kind of talking about the. It's titled "The New Rock Stars of Oil and Gas: Digitalization's Place in Upstream's Future." Um, so if you're not new, you obviously know that we've, we've ranted and raved about big data and analytics and cloud computing and, uh, you know, virtual reality and robots and, you know, all this cool stuff that Silicon Valley already has that, um, especially upstream oil and gas has not really been able to leverage, um, kind of up into this point. I think we're still in the infancy stages of that. And so, uh, this article kind of dives a little bit into kind of the value and really the size of the opportunity in that space. Um, one of the first things that it, that it talks about is, um, that, you know, a lot of the success of digitalization within the upstream space is not necessarily going to be super measurable at first because a full transformation of an organization, like a lot of these EMPs, it takes a while, you know, and the, and the biggest problem, I guess I should kind of go back and say that the biggest problem is you have all these companies that operate like it's 1985. Um, every department within the company, uh, kind of operates on their own and it makes their own decisions and therefore they have their own uh, databases and they make siloed decisions and it's kind of just really, really antiquated. Um, and if you were to look at any other industry um, out there, you would see that they have evolved and, and moved past that. Um, and there's so, 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 so much data that is collected. Mark, how much, how much data do you think is collected daily from, from each one of these wells? I have no idea, but I, I guarantee you, I, I bet it's, I bet it's, it could, could be terabytes. It's there's, <laughs> yeah. It really depends on the company. It depends on like what data points they're actually capturing. But it's it's ever, it's constantly growing. Um, and ninety seven percent of the data that's ever collected from, from any of this operational data is actually never used. Um, so they collect it and they store it, and it just kind of sits there. So so what's happening is they have all this data, but they don't use it, and they haven't used it. But there's a lot of opportunity there. 
And this data has been going on since the 50s when they had paper mud logs. That data is still there. Um, and so nobody actually understands how much data, no person or company can tell you how much data is in upstream oil and gas right now because it's so large and it's so siloed and it's so disparaged out there. And But we're getting there. This is a great article by um, um, uh, Wood McKenzie um, about how we're getting there and how it's driving efficiencies and not just efficiencies in cost. It's driving efficiencies in things like safety and making smart business decision. Um, now, of course, the challenge, like Jake mentioned, is quite honestly ourselves, right? We've always done stuff in Microsoft Excel. We're going to keep doing stuff in Microsoft Excel. And that limits the ability for this um, uh, data analytics to actually access a lot of that siloed stuff. But this younger generation that's coming in is changing that. And these tech companies out there have great solutions that drive real business results, that drive real dollars, that drive safety metrics, that allows companies to pull ahead of their competition. So um, we're, 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 we're in a race as an industry to try to catch up, like Jake said, with some other industries. You know, big box retail, you think of Home Depot and Walmart, those companies know how to use data to make sure they affect their bottom line. And we need to get there too. And we're going down that road. It's going to be really interesting to see as all these young people come in our industries, these uh, you know physicists and geologists and petroleum engineers and mechanical engineers um, that have grown up within a digitalized world, how quickly can they can accelerate this. I really think in the next five years, as our workforce gets younger and younger in oil and gas, this, the rate of us being able to tap into this and use it is going to accelerate really quick, um, which means that if you're if you're mid-career, which there's a gap of people, you know, the third, late 30s to late 40s, if, you know, if you're in that age group in oil and gas, you, you're kind of, you're in the minority. And so what you want to make sure you do with your career is that you pay attention to this and learn about it as it happens. Because if not, you get left behind by this younger generation that's coming in. But it's just great for the industry. It's something Jake and I uh, both have a lot of um, um, appreciation for and been wanting to happen all the time. In fact, Jake, you know, you're, you're pending... Um, launch of Wellhub is right around smack in the middle of this, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we, uh, I can't legally go into too much of the specifics, but we are doing a regulation crowdfunding uh, raise as part of our seed round uh, funding uh, that should be going live uh, within the next month, month and a half. Uh, we don't have a solid date yet. Um, and this is pretty much, I guess, I guess if I was to uh, kind of relate it to the article, uh, one of the... <coughs> One of the quotes from the article is saying, unification of multiple company-wide IT systems in a single central platform is the holy grail. Opening up access to users, whether real people or machines, relevant partners. All the users can then work in concert to make things happen. That is pretty much what we're trying to do with Wellhub. Um, and, and so it, it's really, really exciting. You can see why I get fired up about this. Um, and you know, same with Mark. There's just so, so many opportunities um, in, in this space. And I've obviously devoted you know, the last four years of my life to, to solving this problem. So very, very excited about the future. Yeah, if you're a student out there listening to us, I'm telling you, take some big data classes or maybe even get a degree in big data. Take some predictive analytics classes. Our industry is going to have a huge need for you if you have that. In your, and even, I don't care if you're a geologist, go take some big data classes, go take some um, predictive analytics classes. It will be super valuable in your career and will help you get ahead of everybody else. Yeah, do you, do you see the, I'm guessing you read the uh, the last section of the article. It was like, what advice do you give to graduate geologists, geophysicists, petroleum engineers, uh, you know, seeing where they fit in the digitalized upstream? And I was like, that reminds me of the time we went to Tulane. You know, it was kind of the... Uh, our same response was, you know, hey, get into predictive analytics or uh, just data science in general. So, Jake, are you saying that Wood McKenzie probably listened to our episode at Tulane University? I think University? so. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt this. it either. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> All right, awesome. Uh, up next, uh, Trump aims, aims for Arctic oil and gas. The Trump administration is trying to lay the groundwork to open up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge for oil and gas drilling. Uh, so the Department of Interior is working to authorize uh, seismic testing kind of as a first step. Uh, you know, it is a necessary precursor for drilling, um, but the agency does not necessarily have the authority to greenlight the drilling itself. Only legislation through Congress can officially open up the ANWR to the industry. Yeah, so if, if you read this article, the, one of the quotes in here, it just bugs me because it's not true. It says, the administration is very stealthily trying to move forward with drilling on the Arctic coastline plain, Defenders of Wildlife President Jamie Robert Clark said. Um, it's not, it's public knowledge. It's not stealthy. And we're not opening up drilling yet. What what President Trump is trying, what Trump's administration is trying to do is let people go out there and do the seismic testing just so we know what we have, right? Is it, is there reserves there? Is it recoverable? Um, does it make sense? Because if it does make sense and it's recoverable and we can do it in an economic and uh, environmentally responsive way, this is another area of revenue for the U.S. government. They will issue leases, right? And people can bid on it. So um, this, this is not about drilling. Um, if you think about what happened with Shell, in the Arctic, uh, Shell didn't go out and drill. Uh, Shell just wanted to test, and, and they got a whole bunch of opposition out there. And all Shell wanted to do was go out there and test and see what was out there. This is the same thing. So, you know, there's going to be lawsuits by environmental groups that are going to use a lot of the existing rules and regulations to try to shut this down without understanding that this is actually a benefit and that we can do this in a way that's environmentally responsible. We are the most environmentally – I was talking to somebody yesterday about this, Jake. We are the most environmentally responsible – industry i know i don't know any other industry gets measured in every little impact and that they believe in their heart that they want to leave the environment better than when they first went out there mm -hmm. so so and 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 that's true here in europe I, I do realize in other parts of the world that oil and gas industry hasn't gotten there um, but they're they're heading that way so um you know this is a good thing let's just see what what we have out there see what we have this it keeps us from being reliant on foreign oil and gas which then only helps us as a country you know pull ahead yeah, a lot of people think that you can either have one or the other, either you know a completely preserved uh, space for wildlife, or you can only or you can do drilling. Um, and I think that's a very very common misconception. I think you can have both. You can have both, and take it from somebody who has a degree in wildlife management. <laughs> I mean, I know the science of managing wildlife. Um, a lot of places, you look at Gulf of Mexico, the oil and gas industries actually increase the amount of wildlife that's in the Gulf, right? We have these rigs to reef programs where we take old rigs and we build artificial reefs that then allow coral and sponges to grow, which allow small fish and bigger fish. So there's actually, we've actually helped the Gulf of Mexico more than we've hurt it. And we do that all over the place. Um, so um, yeah, this is a, a good thing. It just, it's a damn shame that it always has to fall back to politics instead of what just makes common sense. So up next, uh, Russia's Rosneft is buying India's Esser Oil. Actually, that's not news. Uh, that's kind of earlier in the year, but that's kind of how the story kicks off. Um, so, like, well, yeah, one of the biggest energy stories of this year was Russia's Rosneft uh, buying India's Esser Oil, giving the Russian company a firm grip in one of the world's, uh, you know, largest emerging oil and gas markets. Uh, Rosneft announced on Friday that they're selling a significant chunk of its equity to Chinese investors. Um, in this case, it's a small exploration production firm called CEFC China Energy. Um, and even though they're small, they're bringing a pretty significant chunk of capital uh, to the deal. Uh, they're paying $9 billion to acquire 14% uh, stake in Rosneft. So it's, it's kind of like this weird three-way joint venture between uh, three countries. 
Yeah, it's it's actually I mean, we've been keeping an eye on this for a while. So the emerging economies, China's one of them, India's another one, uh, are are a huge target for future oil and gas marketing. You know, getting people signed long term contracts. China is actually playing heavy in this, using a lot of capital. Um, Russia um, actually um, bought the Indian oil company, which then gives Russia access to the Indian market, which is a great market to have access to now and in the future. But they use Chinese money. So now China has has almost like a backdoor into India because of the capital they gave to Rosnet. Now, the, the interesting thing about this is that the company that Jake mentioned, um, CEFC China Energy, is actually buying the stake from Glencore. And that's part of Qatar's sovereign wealth fund, <laughs> which means that the Middle East has another backdoor through the Chinese, through the Russian, into India. So there's a bunch of geopolitics going on here. Um, the holders, the CEFC and Glencore and Qatar's sovereign wealth fund, took a loss on this, right? A 25% loss. Well, you don't take a 25% loss when you're talking about billions of dollars unless there's a longer-term play for you. So I, I think things are going to rapidly change. I mean, I know they are in India. I, I firmly believe that India eventually in our lifetime is going to pass up China, both in population and GDP. Um, so let's keep an eye on this, but this is just, this is just some major countries realizing the market potential for oil and gas in India and trying to get ahead of the game. Do you think there's any major geopolitical implications <clears throat> because of this? For us? I mean, this yeah, is a yeah, lot of geopolitical. Yeah, so what's going to happen is we want access to that market too. And natural gas is the fuel of the future, right? That's what all this LNG capacity we're building is not for now. It's for the future. And so India right now needs more reliable and higher production electrical generation for its country. The only way it can pull their people out of poverty and out of the agricultural lifestyle is is abundant, cheap, reliable energy, which they don't have right now. If you go to India now, Jake, they have rolling blackouts. If you try to run a company over there, usually you have your own generators because you can't rely um, on the on the Indian government supplying you electricity all day long. So that needs to change and they're working on it. The best fuel for that is, of course, natural gas. We now have the ability to ship LNG um, over to India quickly and effectively and you know economically it makes sense so this is we're trying to get a hold of ahead of this curve and grab market share from other countries like russia and china and they're trying to beat us to it in the end honestly jake is going to keep prices low for india which is going to allow them to generate reliable power for their people which really kind of just helps them so it's this is kind of a good thing when you look at it from a world geopolitical thing there's competition here it's blocking and tackling um i don't know where this is going to shake out we'll just keep our eye on it all right, so up next, the world's largest offshore oil field is back in action again. Um, so the largest oil field, uh, offshore oil field, the largest discovered in the last 40 years is Kazakhstan's Kashagan field. Uh, it's finally on the verge of moving beyond the manifold impedance uh, that hindered its development. So it was discovered in 2000. Uh, it's a 13 billion barrels of oil field. Uh, there's 33 billion barrels of oil in place. So that's a whole lot of Bs. B, 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 L. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was uh, set to begin producing in 2005. Uh, however, it didn't actually start producing until 2013. Um, there was like a major pipeline leak that yeah. led to some kind of like production hiatus, I'm guessing. It yeah, so this is a man-made set of man-made islands. That's how much oil is here. They actually built some islands. And <laughs> and you have subsea pipelines and you have manifolds and plets that connect all the stuff so they can move that oil to market, basically move it to shore. And they had a leak um, in one of the pipelines 
on these artificial man-made islands that shut everything down. It took them three years basically to fix it. Um, and part of that is the, the, the field itself is, is a challenge from a technology point of view. Um, there's a huge difference in temperature range. Um, there's um, the water shallow, so it's rough, and part of the year it's covered in a lot of ice. Um, the oil itself is not ideal. It um, has a lot of sulfur in it, a lot of uh, sulfur dioxide in it, which is you know lethal. And so th- it was a technology challenging field, but they they went after it and they in the construction they completed. Um, but the, the issue with the pipelines caused them to shut down for a while because basically the, the pipelines weren't able to handle higher sulfur level, levels, which caused corrosion. So they, they shut everything down to prevent an environmental catastrophe, which we just talked about in the previous article. They could have went into production, made money. They shut everything down and lost money to keep from harming the environment. Um, and then so they went in and they fixed everything. Now they're bringing everything back online. Um, so um, in, unless something changes, you know, you're going to have a ton of capacity come online in this year um it, which would only help the um you know the, the country itself um from from an economic point of view uh so up next uh speaking of offshore uh total joins chevron in gulf of mexico development um they've expanded their presence in the gulf of mexico by closing a farming agreement with chevron for the development of seven prospects covering 16 blocks in the deep water section of the gulf um they said that their prospects will develop in an area located near the Wilcox Play in the central Gulf of Mexico, near the Anchor Discovery, and in the Northlet area close to the Appomattox Discovery. I know I've been seeing a lot about this in the news lately about how Mexico has been looking for more partners to come in um, for a lot of their offshore development. Yeah, it's um, it's it's they need help. So basically, it's so funny. I was just talking about this yesterday as well. They have a ton of oil and gas of their own. They can't get it out the ground. And just like India and just like China, in order to bring their people out of out of an agrarian society, they need cheap, abundant, reliable energy, which they don't have right now. So one of the kind of funny things about that, Jake, and this doesn't hit the news too often, but as a state, Texas, we're benefiting the heck out of this. We're building pipelines like crazy, selling Mexico, Texas gas, um, which is silly because they have their own. They can't get it out the ground. And here's Total coming in going, hey, we'll help you get it out the ground so you can benefit from it. We want a piece of the action, which is normal. Same way Total being here in the Gulf of Mexico. The Gulf of Mexico has a lot of sh- uh, shelf drilling, so it's shallow water, so it's economically viable. So the companies that, you know, Five years ago, we're looking at deep water, ultra deep water stuff. It, that doesn't make sense today. So now they're looking at places where it makes sense to drill offshore. You know, Total is one of the few super majors out there, which means they know the whole industry from one into the other. Um, so it's, you know, um, they've had their issues like all the majors have, right? So they've had to do layoffs and everything else. But this is, this is Total and the industry as a whole starting to creep up starting to drill again because prices have stabilized in a place where people can make money. Um, so, you know, good job. And when they when they partner like this, the reason they partner with Chevron is they mitigate risk. So it's less risky for both Chevron and Total to partner together because they share that risk. Um, and that's one of those things you get, that's always happened in our industry and you can see it keep happening. Actually, probably more and more because these lower crude price environment that we're in for long term is, is much more riskier to operate in um, than when you were making, you know, 30 or 40% profit margins. So up next, uh, Philip 66 Partners buys Philip 66 assets in a $2.4 billion deal. Um, so this is just more so of a consolidation rather than just a straight out. I mean, it is technically an acquisition. but um, So Philip 66 Partners and the master limited partnership of Philip 66 um, is, is buying it for $2.4 billion, including debt. Um, so it's the largest acquisition the partnership has ever made. Um, so most MLPs are really formed to buy and operate midstream assets. 
Um, so I believe. Yeah, there's tax benefits for that, um, yeah. and 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 you're starting to see other types of company formations other than um, MLPs come in once again for for tax benefits. So, yeah, this is this is a tax benefit play where somebody that was had a pipeline company is looking to trade with somebody that had a refinery, right? And, and it benefits both of them. And what makes it funny is these are two separate companies that used to all be under ConocoPhillips. <laughs> so it's, it's, when you hear Phillips 66 partners to buy Phillips 66 assets, you, you have to understand that those are actually former ConocoPhillips parts of the business that were spun off. And now they're just correcting some business stuff, right? If, um, and basically, they're, they're buying part of that Dakota Access um, the Bakken pipeline part of that, right? So it just makes sense because then if you're a refinery, you can then, if you own part of the pipeline, you now own the infrastructure, which you control the cost of transport, which is most important, really important to you because that's your raw feedstock. Yep. So audience, did you follow along with that? <laughs> did I go through <laughs> that too quick? <laughs> All right, up next. Uh, OPEC's second biggest producer could possibly split in two and start an oil war. Um, so the oil, an oil-rich province in the north of Africa plans to vote in referendum on Kurdish independence later this month prompting fears of regional conflict as tensions escalate over who owns a portion of the country's crude. Um, so I read through this. This is definitely like the, oh man, just the dynamics of this entire situation. It, it's kind of hard to understand. Um, I think a lot, of, a lot of things in the Middle East are hard to understand. Um, do you, yeah, it's, do you um, have a grasp on this more? I probably, you probably do have a grasp on this better than I do. It, this, is a, this is a mess, and, it, and it's a mess because so this is a good article for you to read to help you understand what happened after we went in and overthrew Saddam Hussein and Iraqi's government. Um, and it's a mess because these aren't governments like you and I think about governments, Jake, they're really tribes and they have allegiance to the tribe. And so you got everybody and their brother-in-law, you got China, you got Russia, you got the U S you, you, um, you got um, Saudi Arabia, all trying to support the tribes in this area that, most aligned with their views politically or, or what they're trying to accomplish. So it's just, it's just a mess. And I'm telling you, Jake, these tribes have been fighting each other for over a thousand years. Uh, this type of stuff is going to just trigger another round of, of, you know, local warfare or, or infighting or whatever. And the whole thing is that the, the Kurdish people are the ones that are suffer from this. Cause if they can't bring the oil, which is really the only thing they can make money at. If they, if they can't get investment by foreign comp- countries, companies because the foreign companies see it as too big a risk because of this infighting um you know then they can't generate revenue which means they can't feed their people so this just is a mess and there's there's i don't see any clear line of sight of fixing this because of the local politics caused by the leaders of the tribes so um you know the kurds have been looking at trying to form independent states since world war one um and and I, you know this is just this is this is going to take a while to, to work its way out. And unfortunately, the big foreign nationals aren't going to invest much of anything until this gets worked out. Yeah, I mean they're producing a lot of oil. It's what four million barrels a day. Yeah, yeah. Well, they have the capacity to do way more than that. Um, you know, it's it's these tribes need to come together and form some type of agreement, even even if that means dividing up the country. Right? It it it, it you know. It just needs to happen. Now, the interesting thing, I told you that that most of the majors aren't going to spend a lot of money here until this gets settled out. Chevron's been there for a very long time, and they're working with each segment of the, the government. Um, so it's, it's you know, I don't, Chevron's, I don't think, making money there. I think Chevron's positioned itself to be the first to the table when things get cleaned up a little bit. 
Interesting. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely complicated. All right, up next, uh, the world's largest sovereign wealth fund hits $1 trillion for the first time. Um, That's a lot so, of money, Jake. Yeah, so the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund, uh, the largest in the world, um, as I just mentioned, hit uh, $1 trillion. Um, and the funny thing is, a lot of the quotes from this is... Uh, some of the, the spokespersons for the fund were saying, we never expected this fund to reach anywhere near $1 trillion. It just kind of just kind of happened. Yeah. So this is cool. So if you don't know, Norway has a lot of control of the North Sea by being smart years ago, right? Negotiating deals with other people in North Sea because nobody thought there was oil there except Norway. Um, so this wealth fund, Norwegian government is a socialist government. The Norwegian government knows that at some point, in history, in the future, that they won't make as much money from oil as they do now. So what they did is they basically set up an investment fund, right? And they invest in stocks and bonds and other companies. I mean, it's managed. That's what this sovereign wealth fund is. You see this a lot. You know, Saudi Arabia has this. Um, you know, there's some there's some Russian wealth funds out there. Same same concept. So um, it hit a trillion dollars because they made really smart investments and they use that money for their country and to do things like, you know, if you go to Norway, Jake, there's unbelievably free Wi-Fi everywhere. The entire country's blanketed with free Wi-Fi. Well, the government pays for that. Same way if you want to go to college, you want to go to university, government pays for that. Um, and so it's um, that's what they use this wealth fund for. And the reason they never thought it would reach um, um, a trillion dollars is they thought that the oil revenue was going to dry up in the in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, which didn't happen. So they keep putting capital in this and they make keep making smart investment choices and it's going to grow. And it's going to grow, you know, in our lifetime, I fully expect this to double, you know, it should hit, you know, $2 trillion. And the cool thing is they set this up over 20 years ago thinking that in the future their revenue from oil and gas would dry up. And it this low crude price environment has hurt the North Sea for sure, but there's still a ton of recoupable um, reserves there. So, you know, I guess good for Norway for thinking of this 20 years ago and doing it the right way. Yeah, that's awesome. I wish we had a uh, blanketed Wi-Fi across the entire U.S. I don't even have <laughs> cell phone service in the middle of Houston. Does that suck? <laughs> <laughs> All right, up next. My my cell phone works everywhere in Texas except upstairs in my office. It's yeah. like really, I have to go the outside one, to be on a phone call. Yeah, the one place you need it. All right, up next, uh, China moves to implement UN sanctions with limits on some re- refined oil exports to North Korea. Obviously, North Korea has been in the news. Uh, we talked about it the last episode, um, and so they are banning some exports of petroleum products to North Korea uh, as well as imports of textiles, um, and to comply with the United. States. United Nations Security Council resolution after Pyongyang's uh, latest nuclear test. <laughs> you know it's bad, Jake. So China is, a, is the only, really, and the biggest supporter of North Korea. So this is like North Korea's big brother, right? Always protect them, watching out for them. You know it's bad when your big brother says you're screwing up and, and we're going to start implementing sanctions against you. Yep. So, um, you know, I don't want to go into all the crazy stuff in North Korea. And we talked about in the last show how I, I think our the bans that we have and the tariffs we have in place are actually working and they're getting desperate. And unfortunately, Jake, I, I, I was thinking about this after we recorded last week's show. When you have a, a monarchy that's not ruled by a democracy where you don't have people have a say in this stuff and a single person can pull a trigger on stuff and they get desperate and they have nuclear weapons. That is not a good combination. Um, you know, if it was a democracy and, and, you know, people could vote on stuff, whatever, but, but this guy could really could do something crazy. And, you know, as the protector of the free world, 
um, and people get mad when I say that, but the U.S. is the only country I know that jumps into other people's stuff <laughs> to protect the rest of the world. I mean, that's how we got involved in both world wars, right? Um, as a protector of the free world, we may have to do something that's going to piss a lot of people off around the world, but we're the only country that will do something. So I really, really hope this comes to a, a political um, meeting of the minds and, and we're able to kind of defuse the situation because it is really tense right now. And, I, you know, their current their current administration in North Korea is doing some crazy stuff in combination with, you know, our political administration is probably not the most calm person to do crazy stuff with right now. Calm administration. So, you know, I, I really hope this thing for the people for the people of North Korea, I really hope this thing gets defused soon. We're, we're, we're at there. We're I mean, we're it's going to go one way or the other soon. Yeah, I'm definitely curious to see how this is going to play out. It seems like we're going to be starving them from every direction, especially with all these sanctions. Uh, and I yeah. think uh, either they're going to get really, really desperate and fire off some nukes, or we're going to go in there and annihilate them, one or the other. Yeah, and and I hope that for the people in North Korea that their leadership comes to the negotiating table and say, okay, what do we need to do to make this go away? That's what really needs to happen. Yeah. I don't know if I don't know if uh, Rocket Boy is going to do that though. <laughs> Rocket Boy. <that> just, <laughs> uh, so speaking of Rocket Boy, Jake, we have a winner. <laughs> That's a good tie-in. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Jessica Roland, uh, supply chain manager at Marathon. You're this week's winner. Yeah, congratulations, Jessica. Jessica, you have won this awesome Red Wing offshore bag. If you would like to be like Jessica and have this awesome offshore bag, which all the employees at Marathon are going to be jealous because you can't get your hands on it any other way, but. Go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Enter your information. We draw one lucky winner a week. No purses necessary. See official site for rules and details. Uh, Jake, what's our rig count up to? We're up 1% from the previous week. We are sitting at 1,027 U.S. rigs. Come on, man. We need um, we need 270 some odd more rigs before the end of this year so I can be right about 1,300. <laughs> Come on, I may go buy a rig. <laughs> you, get, you get them for pennies on the dollar right now, the old ones especially. Um, events on deck, uh, we're all be, uh, we may not all be, Jake may not make it because he's so busy with his startup, but uh, we're going to be at SPE Annual Technical Conference and Expo. Uh, this is one of our must attend events. This is a place to go if you're in that technology world and you want to see what's going on in oil and gas. Um, it's in San Antonio. Uh, if you go, hit us up on Twitter or something. We're going to be recording podcasts from the event, probably shooting some video interviews. Let us know. We'd love to connect with our audience. Um, and if you're on the borderline, if you're on the fence, I'm telling you, go to this thing. This is There's only a handful of conferences that we make sure we go to every year. This is one of them. Um, and then um, there's a, a, a Denver Energy Tech Showcase, right, Jake? October 17th. What's going on with that? Yeah, October 17th, it's going to be uh, I'm going to be there. You know, uh, I'll be there exhibiting uh, a lot of the stuff that we're doing with Wellhub. Uh, it's it's more so of a it's it's not like the big Nape feel or any of the SPE events. Um, it's definitely a lot more intimate. There's probably going to be about a hundred or so people there um, representing either their tech firms, startups, uh, or from EMPs or from uh, venture capital firms. Um, you know, it's they're running out an entire brewery, and it's just a cool way for new firms to really showcase their technologies uh, and get exposure to, um, you know, potential clients and customers. Um, and so yeah, it sounds like a really, time. it sounds like a really intimate, valuable event. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they'd already done one earlier in the year back in January, February, and they knocked it out of the park. And so this one's going to be uh, bigger and better. And I'm just really excited for that. 
Yeah, so uh, go support Jake if you're in that neck of the woods. And if you're not in the neck of the woods, jump on a plane anyway. Go support Jake. He's going places with this. Um, we have a first Friday Q&A coming up. So it's your chance to have your question asked. If you ask your, if we submit a question and we use it on the air, you'll get a big shout out. You'll also get put in the drawing for these really cool um, OGG and lapel pins that we're going to be giving away. So uh, submit your question. It's easy to do. Go to our, the website for this podcast, which is oilandgasthisweek.com. Click on Ask a Question. Throw your question in there, and like I said, you'll get a big shout-out plus a chance to win something really cool. If you like the show, we haven't gotten a review in forever. Can you leave us a review? Your new listeners out there, come on, take five minutes, three minutes, go to iTunes, leave us a review. You can now do it from your mobile device, which you used to not be able to do. Um, it helps us get the word out. Um, it helps your fellow peers out there realize this is a podcast worth listening to. And then we have uh, two other podcasts. If you haven't figured out yet, we have Oil and Gas Industry Leaders with Paige Wilson, Oil and Gas HSE with Patrick Pister. Uh, go check those out if you have an interest. They're both great shows. And then if you're a new listener and you haven't joined the LinkedIn group yet, go join the LinkedIn group. Just look for OGGN. It's the companion to this show, all the shows. And if you go to our website to li- leave a question, Take an extra 30 seconds and give us your email address. We won't spam you, but we have some live events coming up. And the first people that will be notified about are the people that give us their email address. The second group of people that will know about it will be on the LinkedIn group. So do both of those and you're bound to find out. And then finally, if you like the show, share it. Share it with your friends, your peers, your coworkers. We'd really appreciate that. Um, Is that about it, Jake? We're ready to get out of here? Yep. Let's do it, man. All right, folks. Do great work. Pay it forward. And we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.